Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today I have an interview with Dr. Matt O'Hara. Dr. O'Hara is a professor of history at UC Santa Cruz and did his PhD at UC San Diego. Our conversation today is around topics including colonial Mexico, race and caste, this concept called future making, and then our sense of Mexican history. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Matt O'Hara. Uh, so thanks for coming on, Matt. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, how people understand themselves. I mean, I, one of the concepts that I think about, you know, is, is this concept of the great chain of being, which comes up a lot in medieval writing, as well as writing, you know, Renaissance on about these, you know, this concept of, uh, that was true in Europe, that people believed uh, with the king at the top or the church at the top and everyone in their place. Mm. And then, you you know, you have these collisions of uh, cultures, uh, religions, traditions, um, and the kind of syncretism is, if the right, if that's the right word, is so interesting. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, that collision that was happening in Mexico with, you know, native people, Catholicism, royalty, you know, there's so many different forces at work and yeah. kind of what happened after the explosion. Yeah. The yeah. Well, yeah, I think you've raised the big issues already um, and the things to be thinking about, right? So one is that the, the categories that people were using in the past were different than ours for the most part. Um, and that's something as historians or people who are interested in the past, we've got to be paying attention to. Um, and so some things that to us seem very strange, unusual, unnatural, wrong even, might not have seemed that way to the people that were interested in understanding, uh, for example, the great chain of being. I mean, what more, what could be um, more repulsive to most people today, right? To think about a natural hierarchy where certain people occupy a lower rung um, and things that we think should be available to all people as a result of their humanity weren't available to a certain class of people. And not only that, but that might have been understood to be natural and okay and right even, including by the people who were in that position in some cases. And so that's a hard thing, I think, for people to, to wrap their heads around. Um, and it's a hard thing for me to think about too. Um, and, and so that's something, you know, that in, you're a history teacher as well, that in, in our classes, we're always trying to get students to begin from that perspective and, and say, well, wait a second, like what's similar and what's different from what you take to be natural. Right. And I think the, the, another thing too is, is I think we, when we think about history of this colonial period, we think about like we reduce this Western mindset to a few different uh, principles and then we just kind of forget about these concepts of the great chain of being and pretend as if it's a native worldview and then our modern western worldview but that's anything from the truth right right no no you know that was the second thing you brought up already which was that well this is a diverse place, right? If we're talking about colonial Mexico, if we're talking about modern California, what have you. And so being also a little bit careful about painting with too broad of a brush, um, both in terms of the social and ethnic diversity of, of any particular place that we're studying, but also the, the point that you just raised, which is that 
um, the the ideas, the ways of being that we might associate really clearly with one group of people as it's somehow their lineage and heritage. And then to think that that didn't somehow get picked up by another group of people as if these are discrete things, which they're not. Um, in, in fact, what we find when we start uh, diving into the archives, usually historians are really surprised by the way that there's a lot of interchange and dialogue. And in fact, a lot of messiness in terms of who believed what and who was aware of what sorts of things. So that's another thing we wanna, um, you know, we're, we're always trying to get our students to look out for too, is the way that there could be blending and bleeding from one category or supposed group to another. And it's, it's true to remember that modern Spain or the state of Spain is a recent development at this point, you know? And I think, <laughs> I think we just kind of see these as stable concepts, right? That just exist. Whereas, you know, Spain as a concept or a nation or something, whatever you would classify it, it, it was relatively new. I mean, yeah. the, not the concept of royalty or anything like that, but the concept yeah. of a unified Spanish state yeah. was new as it, well. No, exactly. I mean, the, um, you know, day one in a, in a colonial Mexico history class is usually we're, we're putting up a map of early modern Spain. And then the second thing we do is say, well, it didn't really exist at that point. Instead, it was a collection of kingdoms of which this thing that we now call colonial Mexico eventually becomes one of those kingdoms, or at least according to some people. And so you know, it's a sort of tricky thing because on the one hand, you don't want to tie yourself into complete knots and you're ne never able to say, right, here's this place and we're going to say a few things about it. You're always qualifying it. Um, at the other time, you, you do need to pay attention to that, that um, these things that we're talking about, as if they were stable, timeless, have histories. And, and um, anytime you enter into the stream of that thing, well, it's going to be a lot more complicated and nuanced than, um, than, you know, than maybe you thought going into it. Yeah, I remember in some of my early history classes in college, we got those big maps, or not maps, charts, charts of the different ethnic uh, or racial categories. Um, how how universal were those kind of concepts in colonial Mexico? Was it something that uh, was true in other places um, that those concepts were used more frequently or was it um, regional? Um, yeah, it's a good question. And and so like with all these things we were, that we've just been discussing, there's regional diversity there. Um, but I think what you might be referring to are the the so-called casta categories, or, yeah. and, and sometimes it's this is referred to, these collection of different, what we would call probably something like racial categories, but I'll, I'll get into some of the, the nuances there. Let's call them social categories for now. Um, sometimes have been referred to as the sistema de castas or the, the caste system. Um, again, there I would say, be, be careful translating that directly into English as the caste system because one of the things that historians have pointed out is that, yeah, every now and then you might come across a list of these various categories in some archival document. Or maybe most famously, some people might be aware of the casta paintings that were produced in New Spain and in what's now Mexico, especially in the 18th century, that show a man and a woman and a child and the offspring of that union and then various labels, these casta designations tied to them. So one, one thing that historians have pointed out as we've looked into, how, how did this work in daily life? You know, did, did this mean anything to people? 
uh, were they as rigid as these paintings and some of these decrees might make us believe? And it turns out that no, it's, it was a lot more nuanced in practice and, and less rigid probably uh, than some of those decrees would. It, it didn't feel like a system necessarily for someone who was uh, on a street corner in Mexico City or in a small town in the countryside. Um, you can see why it's attractive, right? You know, some of these, I mean, I think that it's attractive to take an artifact yeah. like a document like this and then extrapolate a culture based on that one yeah. artifact. Or, and then you have this system that you can explicate and write about and try to understand. But uh, of course, you know, you can, I mean, you can't just assume something about an entire complex culture and we talk a lot about the differences even in in this podcast about central Mexico versus Alta California on the frontier. And it's just, it's so complicated and so diverse. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And that's true even if you stay a little bit farther south, even, you know, even different regions within central New Spain, right, um, uh, are going to look and feel and, and were a lot different than, let's say, a big urban area like Guadalajara or Mexico City, for sure or the coast of Veracruz or something like that. So, so yeah, there's a lot of regional diversity. And that meant that the lived experience of social categories, and, and they did have a real meaning and, and an impact at times on people's lives. Um, nonetheless, that experience was gonna be a little bit different from place to place or time, right? I mean, we are talking about a, a 300 year colonial experience uh, roughly in, in, in some cases. and so whether we're talking about the mid 16th century or the mid 18th century, that's going to be different as well. Right. Um, now that said, I don't want to say that all of this is a kind of a social construction and it didn't, it didn't matter to people's lives. There's some real material consequences of being designated one casta category or another. Things as basic as what sort of taxes you paid, you know, might be different based on different designations, whether or not you could go to university, hold certain kinds of jobs, wear certain kinds of clothes, uh, those could impact people's lives. And so, I, you know, I, I do want to um, recognize that as well. Yeah. Let's talk about how the Catholic Church plays into this. One book that really, um, I don't know if you've read it, but it startled me. Um, I actually have a seminary education, and I read it there, and it was called The Christian Imagination. Uh, no, it's by a guy that. named uh, Willie James Jennings. Okay. And basically it shows... The, the deep connection between our concepts of race and then theology and Christian theology. Um, so how did, how did these, uh, did these relate racial concepts have any relation uh, to the Catholic church or did the Catholic church have a way of reinforcing them or are they separate kind of categories from uh, Catholicism? Yeah, no, I think they mix in, in, in interesting ways. I mean, so one of the, the fundamental designations and one of the social categories that gets created in this whole colonial experience of, uh, um, you know, not just in colonial Mexico, but in the Americas more generally, of course, is the category of Indian or Indio in Spanish. So everyone knows probably, right, that this is a category that's a famous misnomer that gets applied to peoples in the Caribbean when Europeans arrive, makes its way over to places like Peru and Mexico. And of course, in the early 16th century, it was designating people that didn't exist, right? There, there, there were no such people in the 15th century, um, but this is a label that gets applied to native peoples of the Americas. Now, 
over time, those labels, again, will have real meaning. So in terms of the religious sphere that you've brought up, uh, Native peoples are being evangelized during this period and being introduced to Christianity, forced introduction uh, in, in many cases. And in a place like New Spain, what becomes Mexico, a whole elaborate structure emerges for the religious education and indoctrination of Native peoples that exists alongside, but in some ways is separate from the religious infrastructure for non-Native peoples or people who are deemed to be not Indian. And so just at, again, at a practical level, that would mean in a place like Mexico City, there was a set of churches just for Native peoples, and then a set of churches that were supposed to be in theory for everybody else. Um, but you can see how, it, you know, if we, we double back to our conversation about the casta system, well, what happens when people have children who it's not clear which category they're meant to be in? Well, it creates a whole series of social and political complications. But, but there's an example of how um, the, there's a, a religious justification for social difference, but also a religious attempt to explain these different categories of people that have been invented. Yeah. So obviously the mission system has an interesting legacy in California. You know, we have these kind of landmarks dotting along our coastline and there's an interesting discourse between this kind of uh, sense or idea of coercion. Um, there is this sense of, especially when you like read the primary sources of someone like Junipero Serra, like you, you get this sense of like wanting to create something that helps people, um, however tragic or misunderstood, you know, however uh, accidentally immoral it was. And so how do you, how do you think about the mission system in California and its legacy? Yeah, that's complicated, first of right, all. Right, And I think, I, I mean, my, it's such a, such a fraught topic. Um, but my, my sense is that anytime we get to even this level of conversation where we're recognizing that, we're, we're part of the way there, right? So I, I feel like um, by, by recognizing that people are complicated beings, um, the histories that they were a part of can contain things that are both, you know, uh, certain aspects of it are horrific. Uh, others, we can sort of recognize our own humanity in it as well. It, once we get to that place, I, I think it's a lot easier to have the conversation. Um, but, but it's obviously a very fraught and, and, and difficult history to, to grapple with precisely because it's, there's this mixture of, um, uh, coercion, violence, subjugation, but at times people who might be embracing th those things, that, like the people who were subjugated and who were dominated, uh, there might have developed a, a, a kind of um, a sense of self over time that identifies in part with those very institutions. So it becomes very, really messy and complicated. I mean, I'll, I'll give you examples from my own research back in, in central Mexico. Um, you know, one of the things I, I found in my research was that if we, you know, we look in the 18th century, there's this moment where uh, churches in Mexico City and in other places in central Mexico are secularized. 
Now that, that term is going to have a very specific meaning for people who are interested in the history of early California. And they think about, and you all think about secularization as the, the conversion of the mission system into something else, right? The right. kind of dismantling of the mission system. Secularization in central Mexico sort of meant that, but, but really what it was referring to was simply the, the regular clergy, the Franciscans, Dominicans, Augustinians, usually being removed from a parish church where they had uh, been in control. And it now being run by secular clergy, so priests who are trained by uh, uh, in the um, in a diocesan seminary or something like that. Now, interesting. So secular clergy is a, is is not like it's so some it's someone that's not in an order, right? Okay. Yeah, so it's and, just a general so, priest. Yeah, it, it, well put, right? So and so that means not secular in our modern sense by any means, but just what we would think of now as sort of a regular priest rather than a member of an order. Do you think that that term is even helpful anymore? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, cause I was, I did a, a couple of episodes on secularization in, at least in Alta California. And I just found myself explicating the term yeah. more than even really dipping into what it was just because I don't know. I mean, like, you know, you think about the Charles Taylor's book, you know, you think about our kind of like understanding of what secular means. And it's just such a, it's such a loaded, complicated term that I don't even, I I almost think we need just a new term. uh, I I think you're probably right too. And in fact, it's funny you bring that up. Um, Going way back to my dissertation that my first book was based on, I, I started using that English translation, secularization, as I was writing about this process. Um, because it's a pretty direct Spanish cognate. And I remember one of my committee members saying, well, you've got to come up with a different term here because it's just really <laughs> confusing. Because in fact, I'm not referring to modern secularization at all in this process. In any case, it's the term that's, that's yeah, uh, still with us. And you probably need, probably need to just talk about conversion from the, the religious orders to some other religious unit. But, but what happens in that moment, and again, it really, it's sort of a technical intra-church move, uh, something interesting happens. And that is, in this process of transition, Native communities start litigating, and they start claiming these churches and parish property as their own. Not unlike some parishioners in Boston did during the aftermath of the sex scandal, when some churches were going to be sold um, to, to come up with funds to pay for some of the settlements. And, and the, these native communities were claiming these churches as communal property because after all, they had been built by and paid for by their ancestors. Right. Their community had lived in these places and worshiped in them for multiple, multiple generations, right? Sometimes going back a couple hundred years. And so there you have an example, I guess, of what uh, uh, an experience in the 16th century of religious con- conversion and change that might have had a lot of the same qualities of coercion and violence that we see later on in Upper California. But over time, the way that those communities remember that place and attach to it is obviously gonna be very different. And, and to me, that experience in 18th century Mexico helps me think about what went on in 18th and then 19th century California too. And then just the the fraught and difficult nature of that history stretching out over time. 
Yeah, and it's in, that's the interesting part of, you know, talking about, you know, the Treaty of, uh, you know, we're jumping ahead, but we, if we talk about the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and we think about kind of the, the land issues that would happen because of that, it's those very communal lands that became the easiest to capture um, by, by the, you know, by the United States. And so it's such a, it's, it's a, such an important, unfortunate history. And so, but did some Native Americans start to, or Indians or whatever term we're going to use, think about property differently after this point in the private sense? No, I, I wouldn't go that far as to say that that somehow this this like led to a, a different sense of property and its relationship to the market, because after all, the, these kinds of contests over over uh, communal land had been going on in, in many different spheres in Mexico, going back, you know, let's say to the 16th century. Um, no, but I but I think it was maybe a different sensibility towards uh, not a different sensibility, a different way of claiming what had long been deemed to be communal property, uh, even religious property, right? So the example that I was using was from uh, an urban space where we're not talking necessarily about landholding communities and uh, and peasant communities, but they're claiming urban buildings, not unlike native communities in the countryside might have claimed actual uh, agricultural land or something like that. I see. So this secularization process um was it more centralized in in southern mexico where there was a lot more heavy government presence than in alta california so i know in alta california there was uh, certain people that were kind of these uh, similar to the indian sub agents that we would have in, in the united states that kind of uh mitigated these land issues on behalf of the different parties involved yeah yeah, so it, yeah, so there is a, a regional and there's a geographic um, quality to this uh, in what's going on in the mid 18th century and late 18th century. And, and in fact, um, part of the argument that was made by those who were promoting this shift was, wait a second, the idea of the religious orders running Catholic churches, or, I'm sorry, Catholic parishes, that goes all the way back to the 16th century. And they were given a kind of special, they, the religious orders, were given a carve out at that point to say that you can run parishes for native peoples because it's part of a missionary project. And so in the mid 18th century, some of these reformers are saying, well, wait a second, that was a couple hundred years ago. Uh, if we're talking about th this um, legacy persisting in somewhere like Mexico City, well, th these are communities that have been Catholic and Christian for a really, really long time. I see. Um, and so there, there was a, a bit of a, a, a regional uh, kind of differentiation. The mission is over. You know, the mission is over. And they've were, accomplished it in the cities, but it's yeah. in the frontier where it's still needed, I guess. Right. Still, the and so we, we see less of this going on as we move farther north. Um, and of course, the missionary experience in somewhere like California was just beginning, right? So the, there again is where we need to sort of separate what's going on in central Mexico is gonna look temporally a lot different than what's going on in upper California, right? It's gonna look a little bit more like what's happening in the 16th century in central Mexico. Is some of this process um, being accelerated because of the kind of the reforms that came 
after the Mexican War of Independence, and it's 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 kind of an efficiency question as well, and you know, kind of more scientific government. Yeah, it, so it, for the most part, these secularizations, again, sort of a problematic term, but these transfers of church control from the religious orders to the regular, mostly that's happening before Mexican independence in, uh, in central Mexico. And it's actually close, uh, closely linked to the so-called Bourbon reforms, and your, few, your listeners might have heard of that uh, discussed by previous guests, but that's a reform movement within the Spanish Empire really gets going heavily in the mid to late 18th century that are very much about productivity and efficiency um, in all sorts of realms from economic life to religious life as well. And so they do mesh somewhat with that series of reforms that are happening throughout the empire. But you know, central Mexico is an, an intense focus for some of those reforms. Okay. Let's make a transition to talk about a concept that I uh, was new to me uh, in your work, which is this concept of future making. You know, I, I, I see a lot of people dealing with uh, historical memory um, in, in, uh, in history circles. Um, but this is an interesting concept, kind of flipping it on its head a little bit. Can you talk about what that is and where, where how you kind of develop some of these ideas around that and how that relates to us? Naturally, historians pay a lot of attention to historical memory because after all that's that's sort of what we do we're thinking about the past and we're really interested in the ways that the past influences uh the present but also the present of the people that we're studying in the past and there's been a lot of writing on historical memory and what some people have called the colonial legacy or the the, the kind of burden that the colonial past placed on the present of let's say 19th century Latin America or the nations that are coming into being at that time, including Mexico. Um, but at the same time, you ask any historian who's started, you know, working through primary sources and um, trying to understand people's lives through the archive and, and whatever traces they left of their life, whether in written form or otherwise, and people start looking in some ways a lot more like us. So this kind of in some ways works against the, the first point that we were discussing at the beginning of the podcast, which is that, especially as you go deep in time, there's a lot of things that are different about people's worldview and the way that they lived. At the same time, there is a sort of, um, uh, one sees aspects of humanity and human aspiration that sometimes look surprisingly familiar to us. And so um, many historians spend a lot of time thinking about how people are trying to get by, how they're trying to survive, um, how they're trying to improve their situation, even within conditions that are, are very different from our own. And so what I was trying to do with this concept of future making is just sort of um, just focus our lens and our, our Cyclops eye as historians a little bit on that aspect of the human past. And so I, I, I tried to focus this book that I ended up writing on the different ways that people imagined the future, the practical things that they did to try to plan for it and improve it. And, uh, and of course, it's all sort of a theoretical construct in the sense because the future never really arrives. It exists in the way that we imagine it and the way that we construct it in our heads. Yeah, I mean, it seems like we're always, we're always, you know, living between two worlds, which is our past and our future. And, 
it seems like i don't i don't know i mean it it, it's an interesting concept to explore in terms of looking at what people were imagining for their futures and then what happened. I mean, from just a human standpoint, it seems like you could learn a lot uh, from that. And I think in some sense, that's, you know, the, the huge, you know, lit world of biographies and memoirs, I think is, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm listening right now to the, uh, you know, each night before I go to bed, I listen to Obama tell me a little bit about his story. So I'm listening to Promised Land, uh, uh, the audiobook and, and hearing him kind of, you know, it's a both historical memory, but also him kind of imagining what his future could be. Yeah. Uh, those two things are pushing and pulling against each other constantly. Yeah. And, and, you know, there, there you're getting at the issue of sources, right? So like, if only we had memories or, or memoirs and, uh, and diaries like that for colonial, there aren't very many of them. Um, in fact, there aren't even that many letters compared to, you know, places like uh, the same time period in early modern Europe or, or British North America. And so instead, we're, we're trying to do this sort of impossible thing, understand how people understood themselves and what their world was like, um, often through sources that are really tricky to do that with. So, you know, legal records where you get a little fragment of someone's life, um, bureaucratic reports, sometimes produced by the Catholic Church, sometimes by royal officials, and, and the people that you're interested in, they kind of come in and out of view, sometimes in very fragmentary fashion. So it can be, be tricky to try to weave them back together as whole people. Yeah. So what kind of futures were people in colonial Mexico imagining? All sorts of futures. That's the first thing I want to I mean, to I'm say. sure there's like personal future, like I'm going to buy this farm or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get to a point where I'm financially stable. And then I'm imagining that there's political visions of what this could be. I'm sure there's different kinds of layers, but I guess I'm talking much more of the bigger picture of what they saw for the future of their world. Yeah. Yeah. So in many different domains and you've named some of them already. So um, often people are thinking about their economic future, right? Not, not unlike our, ourselves. We're thinking about what the next year is going to look like and, uh, and beyond. And so um, I, I, you know, we have a lot of examples of the way that people, for example, in the countryside are planning for the next agricultural season and the next year's crops um, or harvest time and what price their crops are going to uh, 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 command in the market, those sorts of things. Uh, we have examples of people thinking about their religious futures, not surprisingly, like um, what does one need to do to achieve salvation? Um, practical things having to do with um, the arrival of ships from Peru or from, uh, or from the Far East, those sorts of things. So a, a vast domain of, of human concerns about what the future was going to bring to their doorstep. Um, one commonality that I began to see as I worked through these sources was that many of them had some kind of what we would call a religious uh, current to them. So concepts or ideas that were pulled from Catholicism somehow. Now, that's not surprising in some ways because after all, this was a, a Catholic society. And, you know, as I was discussing earlier, if we're talking about a place like Central Mexico and you're studying it in the 17th or the 18th century, not only that, but it's, uh, these are areas that have been Catholic and have had Catholic institutions, whether, uh, whether churches or parishes, but also a legal system that might be drawing on, on religious concepts. 
for generations and hundreds of years in some cases. And so that's sort of one commonality that I began to see in early modern Mexican or new Spanish future making is that people had a surprisingly sophisticated sense of things that we would call abstract theological concepts, right? That you would, you would not expect the, the average person to have these days. And that's because they were living in a different, very, very different society. Yeah. And I'm thinking about too, like this concept of the future and thinking about how it's definitely, you know, the future, I mean, in some ways we could say is, uh, in uh, kind of a religious invention, you know, this concept of the return of Christ and all these kind of concepts that are embedded in religion. And I, I, I can't, I, I must imagine that native understandings of the future were very different. And so perhaps their understanding of the future or what the future was or what it could be changed as well, or even the concept of a future. I mean, I, I have this kind of rudimentary understanding of, uh, different worldviews um, of, of different native peoples. But I think one of the concepts that I learned in school, and I don't know how accurate it is, but this kind of like circular uh, concept of time uh, versus kind of a linear concept of, you know, creation, the fall, uh, the return, whatever, new kingdom, whatever. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is like, again, going back to this, uh, this point, of, of diversity, right? So when we're talking about native peoples, well, there could be a whole uh, wide range of ways of thinking about the future, just as there would be for people of European descent or people of shared ancestry who've grown up in this place, New Spain or, or colonial Mexico. So that's the first thing I'd wanna say from the outset is that um, I would be less interested in saying that people in colonial Mexico had a certain vision of the future that was different from or similar to people in British North America or early modern France. Um, but, but just to say that taking that concept of future making and kind of like uh, focusing our lens a little bit on that issue opens up a new way of looking at all sorts of different histories, right? So for example, like the, um, the, the way that someone thought about the future in a village in Oaxaca might be different than in, uh, you know, Oaxaca City or uh, or in Mexico City or the Valley of Mexico. There's going to be a lot of different factors that might impact that the way that particular person relates to the future. In the same way that their status as a young person, an elder, a man, a woman, someone of a different racial or casta category or designate, all those things are going to impact the way that they might be imagining the future. Um, so recognizing diversity, I, I guess, would be the, the, the one pitch that I'd want to make. Um, and the second, was there a second part to your question? I'm not sure. It was a pretty windy question. <laughs> I, I was, I, it was, you know, sometimes these questions are already formulated and sometimes they are, uh, they come to me as I listen to someone talk. So I'm not exactly sure. I think you covered everything that I was thinking about. I do want to ask you, though, about thinking about future making in colonial Mexico versus um, future making in a new uh, uh, Americanized California, you know, because it seems in some ways and, um, you know, there's an episode that's going to come out in a little bit with H.W. Uh, Brands where we talked about this. Um, it seems like when 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 the United States arrived in California, 
They made the future the present, <laughs> you know, that you strike it rich today. You make your money now. This is, you have arrived in uh, the, new, the new world in some sense. And it feels a little bit, and this might be a mischaracterization, it feels like when I think colonial Mexico, I think kind of the old. Mm, and then yeah. when the United States arrives with this Protestant positivist work ethic, do it now, do it quickly, make the money now. It seems like we have this clash of, um, of, of concepts of the future and the present and how they relate. You know, in, in some ways that, that's, that was sort of a notion that I was trying to push against when I started working on this project. Um, because I, I think that that sort of characterization of, of early Mexico is one that's sort of out there, right? The idea right. that it's, it's shackled by the past and it's, it represents an antique version of the 18th or the 19th century, whereas the U.S. was the, the kind of striving, forward-looking version of that same moment. Um, and I'm not saying that, that that's not in, uh, entirely wrong, um, but, but again, you know, many of my fellow historians who've worked on, say, like, New Spain's economic history, we find when we get down in the weeds, well, people are strivers there too, right? right. And people are very interested in self-promotion. People are very interested in looking out for and improving the lives of their family. So I was trying to recapture some of that. Now, that said, I guess one thing that is probably undoubtedly different if one was to write a, a similar book about the same period that, uh, in you know somewhere in the U.S. or British North America, would be that, for example, I've said it already. The Catholic Church plays a really big role in this history, partly because it, it's such a big institutional presence. It's such a big intellectual presence, not just in the way that we think of the intellectual as some separate sphere of life, but the thoughts and concepts that people had in their head. And so that's probably one aspect of early modern. Mexican future making that's a little bit different than let's say, uh, you know, British North America for sure. Um, and the, the amount of time that those institutions and practices had been in place in central New Spain, well, that in and of itself is going to give a little bit of nudge towards inertia and stability in ways that are gonna be different than uh, upper California in the late 18th, early 19th, mid 19th century, where a lot of that particular history of the institutions, let's say of the missions or what comes later on is more recent. The institutional networks are a little bit less dense. Maybe that means that um, transitions and changes might happen a little bit more quickly when some signal event like the gold rush happens, for example. So those are just some sort of random thoughts on that tension between everyone's a striver on some level and everyone's thinking about the future, but there are certain institutional factors that might uh, slow down the speed of the future coming at us. Right. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, if we're talking about strivers, you know, Cortez was, uh, he was, he was quite a striver, uh, maybe not in the best ways, but uh, you, you couldn't say that he wasn't entrepreneurial uh, and uh, taking advantage of uh, the moment. Um, but, and, and, you know, again, just like many native peoples in, in the period that I study are very much strivers too. And that's something that we sometimes sort of lose sight of when we think about 
the indigenous as meaning locked in the past, timeless, uh, communally oriented. So, you know, sometimes that's the case. Sometimes that's the case for early modern European people. Sometimes it's not. So, um, yeah. I mean, you think about the horses, horses being introduced. You think about the Comanche Empire. You think about all these different groups and. Uh, it's hard to say that those were stagnant societies. They were they were adapting as fast as possible to yeah. a changing landscape. Let's um, let's close today by talking about books. Um, I want to talk about uh, you know, there. There's a whole world of uh, literature on this subject, and I was hoping you could uh, give us a little guidance in where to where to start in these areas if we want to think more and try to understand uh, Spain and Mexico's legacy in California. As I think that's something that, I mean, it's 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 crazy to think that, you know, I mean that that treaty with Mexico was signed just 170 years ago. You know, that's that's relatively recent that uh, California changed hands. So, um, what 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 are some important books uh, to you? Yeah, sure. Um, you, when you told me you were going to ask that question, it's such a hard one, right? Because there's so many. Uh, well, yeah, you can feel free to, I said three in the questions I sent you, but feel free to three. go as long as you, as you, as you want to. Um, so I'm going to focus on, on books that are from a little bit further South from central Mexico, my kind of main area of study. And in fact, one that's from colonial Guatemala. And all three of these are, uh, they speak to your question. They, they they get at fundamental issues about what these societies were like that would later become the independent republics of the 19th century. Um, and on the topic that we were just discussing about strivers, and uh, there's a great new book by Martin Nesvig that's titled Promiscuous Power, an Unorthodox History of New Spain. And Nesvig looks at a region in Western central Mexico, what becomes central Mexico, Michoacan in the 16th century. And it's a really remarkable feat of history because he pieces together from all sorts of different sources, including inquisition records, um, the lives of people in this region. And he points out how the people who were meant to be the very agents of the Spanish empire were in fact much more interested in personal enrichment in petty uh, kind of conflicts with their fellow quote unquote colonialists to the point that they undermined the power of the colonial project in that place in their very personal striving and, and uh, self-interestedness. And so, um, so I'd recommend that one. Uh, a second one that I would recommend is The Woman on the Windowsill by Sylvia Sellers Garcia. She's a great historian of colonial Guatemala, uh, among other places, and it's a reconstruction of a murder and the investigation of a murder that took place in 18th century Guatemala. And again, it's a really beautiful reconstruction in the way that it takes sources that are hard to read, are fragmentary, and pulls together a coherent history of this case, but also says something about the uh, the nature of the society in the 18th century, what was going on in terms of policing and the reform of, of policing. And then a third one that gets to some of the issues we were talking about in terms of diff what we would call different racial or social categories is a book by Ben Vinson called 
uh, I'm looking at the, the copy on my left here, Before Mestizaje, The Frontiers of Race and Caste in Colonial Mexico. Now, that, that subject is one that historians have written about for a long time. And one of the virtues of, of Vincent's book is that he, he takes stock of that long literature, but then offers a fresh interpretation of what did it mean that there was all of these very unusual designations of people? Did, did people care about that? Did it have any impact on their daily life? And so he does that by looking at some of what he calls the extreme casts, some of the things that we see in the Custa paintings and in some of the colonial documents, the categories that were less common. How is that, how, how is that kind of, I mean, this is, this is my favorite subject and, but, and, you know, I, I've had past guests tell me that like, no, Jordan, people can find this boring. I, I am always curious by the, how the historiography changes over time. So what has there been a, what's the shift been in that discussion of, of race and the costas and, and that, uh, that kind of discourse? Yeah. So I'd say in, in uh, an, you know, an earlier generation or two ago, there was much more emphasis on the sistema de castas being a caste system in English, right? Uh, something that was very rigid, where your upward and downward social mobility was really severely constrained based on the casta category that you were born into. Um, and, and partly that interpretation emerged out of reading decrees, legislation that said who could do what, who could live in what community, that sort of thing. Um, over time, historians have pointed out how in actual practice, things were more complicated than that, but not just complicated in the way that historians sometimes say, oh, it's complicated, Me meaning that there was more nuance and there was more possibility for those categories to change over the course of someone's life. Um, more nuance in terms of um, how those categories impacted someone uh, on a daily, um, uh, on, a, on a personal level in, in their daily life. Um, so without losing sight of the fact that we're talking about societies where there's a lot of inequality, where there's a lot of rigidity com in, in compared to our own world in terms of what people could do or couldn't do, the, historians have pushed back a little bit on that idea of a completely rigid system uh, of, of casta categories. Um, and so Vincent's trying to engage both of those issues and take us maybe one step beyond. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's for a lot of people, you know, if you go to, you know, if you're an average person, you go to a Barnes and Noble or something, there's a temptation to want to just get like a Will Durant style history of the world and just kind of have a, like a, a simple thesis about how things work. Uh, you know, these kind of grand theories, these, you know, general relativity, Einstein grand theories of things. But obviously, you know, when it comes to history, things is, oh, things are always more complicated. Um, and it's, it's not, it's not as fun to just say, cause I mean, you know, the, what's the favorite professor line when you ask them a question that has a clear yes or no answer, it depends. Right. And I, and, and we all hate that question cause we all just want a, a yes or no answer or a clear thesis, but it really does depend. And I think part of the re, part of the trouble that we are having in our society is, is we have too many of these big Will Durant style uh, historical understandings of how the world worked. And, you know, and we can close with this. 
uh, what would you, how would, if, you know, if you're talking to someone that's used to reading uh, guns, germs, and steel, and you're trying to convince them of the value of this, how would, how would you talk to them about that? Yeah. Well, it's funny you bring up that book too, because, uh, um, you know, th- th- there is a value in, in having a kind of big interpretation, uh, whether it's right or wrong, right? In the sense that it, it gives you some purchase, right? So it, it, like a, an, a really idea-driven book like that one, it's, it's easy to sink your teeth into. And then you can take that idea and then bounce it off of other things. So that's the benefit of that approach. Right, right. I think the, the, the downside you've already said, which is that it could distort the thing that you're trying to understand. And, you know, one thing I, I, I ask students to do is if they're, you know, if they're wondering about like the value of, um, of a kind of synthetic version of history or, you know, using Wikipedia to understand something really deep, like Wikipedia can be really great for certain kinds of things. And sometimes their articles can be incredibly rich. But usually like the heuristic, I, the, the rule of thumb I ask students to use is pick a subject that you know really, really well. That might be you, right? Like that might be yourself or that might be your family. And imagine what would be the synthetic version of that history and would it distort that history at all? Like would it leave out certain things? Would there be nuance that would be lost? And that, that's the issue that we're grappling with, right? So um, it's, it's, I think it's fine to go after some of those big idea books, but then bounce them off of something that's a little bit more detailed and finer grained. And that's a good way, that's sort of a corrective um, to see if things are getting a little bit too simplistic. Yeah, and we can't live in a world where we try to understand everything through that lens. We would, you know, <laughs> we'd lose our minds. Yeah. You know, we need some helpful, we just need to know the concept of gravity and generally what it means without understanding the physics of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think um, when it comes to issues of race and caste and these kind of explosive issues that have so much, so many implications for us, I think uh, it's worth uh, unpacking them to really see what they are. Um, and hear the different versions of those stories. So um, to close, what are, you, uh, what are you working on these days and where can people find your books? Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm actually working on something a little bit different in time and place right now. Um, I, when I was working on the book on, on future making, I, I got involved in a project that has to do with an Amazonian arrow poison that became the first muscle relaxant. So I'm trying to put together that whole wow. history. Connection, <laughs> yeah. Connections between native peoples, um, uh, Ecuadorians, Peruvians, naturalists, um, pharmaceutical companies in the United States, and and try to understand how that all came to pass and who some of the people were involved in that history. And um, and so in terms of my previous work, my my faculty webpage at, at UC Santa Cruz has links to a lot of my earlier articles and uh, and books, and so people can find it there. All right. Thanks, Matt, for talking to me. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening. As always, you can support us by going to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash history of California and make a financial contribution. Or you could do the thing that I always love, which is leave us a rating and review. Those ratings and reviews encourage other people to listen to this podcast. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.